As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. And Bruno Fernandes doesn't give them an early boost. Saved by Sanchez. A golden chance to get off to a flying start isn't taken by Bruno Fernandes. Hello there, thanks for joining us again this week on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. I'm Ali Maxwell, great to have you with us. I'm with Mark Carey, I'm with Liam Thom and with Michael Cox as well. Hello guys, how are we doing? Good, Ali, how are you? Very well. I enjoy these very busy midweek slates of Premier League action. Staggered kickoff times, where do we stand on those? I mean, for the for the at-home viewer, it's a bit of a novelty, but... You're often left in a situation where you don't really know which game you're meant to watch from sort of nine o'clock onwards or even from 8.30 onwards. Well, I was at uh, Luton Arsenal on Tuesday night, an 8.15 kickoff, and uh, it's just too late. Games go on so long these days. It finished at like 25 past 10. Really had to run to get my train. 8.15 is too late for me. It felt weird. I reported on the the Brighton-Brentford game. Uh, yesterday and it felt too early to do a 7.30 it felt mm. like it should be at least a 7.45 or a, an 8 it just it was quite jarring so major, I'm just not on board with these schedules vibes, at all. yeah like World yeah. Cup or Euros and it's just weird kickoff hours <laughs> we were chatting about topics in the Slack channel earlier this week and one stood out from the rest we want to talk about penalties because penalties are being scored in the Premier League this season at a rate that Duncan Alexander our friend and colleague described as officially insane <laughs> and given how passionate Duncan is about statistics. I think that's worthy of looking into. Then last night, uh, as Opta tweeted, Robert Sanchez saved a penalty from Bruno Fernandes and that ended a run of 32 consecutive Premier League penalties having been scored. The previous miss was Erling Haaland against Sheffield United back in August. So good time to be talking penalties because this is quite the quirk, Michael. Yeah, we decided to do this topic before that missed one last mm. night, which I was a little bit annoyed about, I must say. But yeah, the conversion rate is 91% so far this season. Obviously, a smallish sample size at this point, but that is uh, yeah quite significantly above anything we've seen before in the Premier League. I mean, it sort of adds to the baffling nature of it last night because penalty saving has, has not been a strength of, of Robert Sanchez's. Um, it was only the third penalty he saved in his career or that hasn't been scored against him. Had one against James Ward-Prowse um, 
last season now in a game that, that Brighton won, but previously it conceded, um, I think, you know, 10, 12 penalty goals. They just weren't a part of his game that, that was evident really at Brighton, which was strange for such a big, good reactive shot stopper. Mm. Um, and as I'm sure we'll go through, it's just something that I think certain goalkeepers seem to have or, or not have, but it's nothing inherent about sort of body type or size. Um, it, it just seems to be a, a really big psychological thing. Yeah, interesting. There's a, an interesting technical discussion that we will have. But first, a more broad discussion, Michael, that there's a lot of VAR discussion always at the moment. And as part of that, a lot of discussion about the penalties that VAR gives or does not give. Uh, overall, do you think that there are too many penalties, let's say, in the Premier League at elite level football at the moment? Well, I think before my view on whether there's too many, I think it's worth just saying that there are more and, and there has been a jump since VAR came in. The peak was actually the second season of VAR where there was 125 penalties uh, awarded and that was noticeably even without looking at the stats it was quite noticeable that season so to give some context the previous few seasons it was often in the 80s and then a big jump up to 125 was a big increase and VAR is obviously responsible I think particularly with handballs but I thought that foul last night the, the Manchester United one mm. I thought that was a classic example of whether you think it's a foul or not I think that so rarely gets given without VAR because I think it's so difficult for the naked eye to see basically a boot almost swiping the top of someone else's foot in you know full speed. That's really difficult to see. But obviously with VAR, it's picking out these little things that it's not that it's not a penalty. It's just not a penalty in non-VAR football. And of course, that's what most of us are accustomed to. I think the bigger, more contentious point really has been the handball situation. That's probably been more contentious for that. I think, as Michael says, sometimes you can spot fouls that uh, aren't as noticeable in real time because of the pure speed of things or the angle. That look, you know, it takes a lot to keep up with the games and have sort of good lines of sight. So I can understand why there's more sort of complaints uh, about the handball side of things. I do think it's interesting as well that when this big penalty spike happened, coincided with a, a high volume of behind closed doors games in an era where figuratively penalties should be easier to take to some degree or for a lot of players. I appreciate it's a different environment if you've always taken them against crowds and sure there'll be some players that like taking it against a crowd that gets them up. But I imagine for a lot of players and especially if you're taking them in away games or in, in a high stick situation that there's that added pressure of, you know, people getting on top of you, hearing home fans if you're an away player. So that to me is interesting that maybe now players have just started to get used to it. If they've had three, four seasons now, how long it's been of taking them in that environment, uh, regular penalty takers have had, had a chance to practice and to them it's it's second nature now waiting three minutes for a VAR delay. I mean, I don't want to make it too much of a controversial statement to sort of debate, but it feels like with VAR as well, there's, a, there's far more erroneous sort of awarding of a penalty and the, the couple that come to mind is Wolves. I know that they've been quite hard done by, but the ones where it's slowed down to such an extent that in real time, you can see that a player is maybe going to kick the ball, pulling out. And if you do slow it down within an inch of its life, VAR is going to give it. And it just, as you say, Michael, feels like, and the numbers suggest that they are just being awarded so much more. Um, in terms of minutes per goal um, for a penalty being scored, it's 650 minutes per goal this season for a penalty and in the past couple of seasons the past four or five seasons it's been closer to eight or nine hundred so we, we are just obviously seeing them so much more frequently and i'm personally not a, a massive fan of seeing it i just think it completely skews the game in specific games i think it can be less entertaining as well so we've already had six penalty goals in games between the big six this season there were seven uh, in the entirety of last season in terms of games between those opponents so 
I think sometimes it can be a bit of a shame when you get big games that feel like they're decided by, you know, goals or sort of small decisions like that. The only real upside I think you get from it now is because there's more penalties. You get cool instances of keepers saving two penalties in a game, which is a real, I think, technical skill and psychological skill. And mm. um, there's Marcel Bolka this season for Nice against Monaco, Lucas Chevalier for Lille recently. And I think Diogo Costa as well saved a couple last season in the same game and from two different takers. So that I, I mean, think that is, the is upside. cool, but it has really not added anything to my life that. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us are into different things, clearly. Well, then you will absolutely not care about what happened in Kingstonian's uh, Isthmian League Cup game last week, okay. where in the 90 minutes, uh, they missed two penalties taken by two different takers and saved by two different goalkeepers. Oh, That must be pretty rare. Hmm. Kingstonian, ironically, then won on a penalty shooter. Wow. Liam mentioned the word uh, entertainment, I think, there, Michael. That there is, what for some including myself, and for some reason a feeling that a penalty goal in such a low-scoring sport where one goal has such a big impact on the on the outcome, on the result, is sort of cheaper than a goal scored from a set piece, of, well, from any other situation. Um, and, and therefore, for me, it, it does feel like it makes the product worse. Yeah, I kind of know what you mean. It's probably not how you'd want your team to score a goal. There is an argument to say that if there are more fouls, then overall it is benefiting the, the more technical players in the game. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's you've got to consider that as well. And then also there's the question about the awarding of penalties for certain infringements. And an article that John Muller wrote on the Athletic site touched on something I've always thought was a really interesting discussion, which is essentially, are penalties too strong a reward for certain infringements or infringements in certain areas of the penalty box. And there's a data aspect to this question, a strong one, Mark, which is a, a penalties a probability of being scored is broadly 0.78. Yes. Maybe yeah. up to 0.79. Yeah, See, if we is... add these, this bit <laughs> into the sample size, into the pot. But the probability of a team scoring a goal from a situation where the cross has been deflected onto the top of someone's arm doesn't feel like a good translation from that infringement to to the awarding of the penalty. Yeah, and it can be in a situation where they're maybe not even looking to take a shot in the next couple of actions as well. And I think that John's piece gave that example of, I think it was Bernardo Silva, kind of going away from goal, but obviously being in the, the penalty area, that there was not there was very little chance, maybe 2 or 3% uh, chance of him scoring or you know Manchester City scoring in the next couple of actions. Then you get given a, a penalty because I think Granite Xhaka brought him down. And then you suddenly go from a 2% chance to a 78% chance of scoring within the next action. It just doesn't quite feel right. And uh, yeah, John gave some creative ways of sort of the alternatives that could be for a penalty. My one on that note is that it's maybe not quite as controversial as John's, which was maybe suggesting to go to the old school uh, MLS way of starting on the, the halfway line and running towards the keeper. But I think one that could be actually quite reasonable is that the minute, a bit like rugby, the minute the player starts to step forward in a normal penalty situation, the goalkeeper is allowed to maybe move off the line and somewhat charge them down. And it could be a bit more of a leveler whereby, you know, the, the penalty taker is still in control where they could maybe take two steps. They've still got the, the control, but it would stop maybe the fact that they could take 10, 12 steps and absolutely leather it at a goalkeeper who's kind of having to be rooted to the spot or at least have one foot behind the line. So I think there's still scope to for sort of rule changes in the next few years on this. 
I've not got as refined solutions as Mark. I think I've seen stuff about possibly moving it back to say like 15 yards or doing mm. it on a like a radius point where you can say it doesn't necessarily be in the center of the goal. Maybe it's from somewhere like they do in, in rugby, right? When they score the try, it's mm -hmm. from in line with where the foul is. So mm. if you get fouled in between the post, then fair enough. Um, but there's also a point that I think, and it, it probably is becoming a bit wildly overpowered now because of the rates at which players are scoring. I guess that that might be a goalkeeping aspect too, but it does also in part need to be somewhat overpowered because otherwise right. there's no reason for defenders not to just kick, kick yeah. players. I've seen solutions where people say, well, they should just get a free kick from wherever they were fouled in the box. But then yeah. you get into a situation where well, defenders will just start fouling people because there's no upside to the attackers. You want it to be an attack dominated mm. sport because people still want goals and flowing attacking moves. So I guess there's, there's a balance to be struck to not overcorrect too far in the opposite direction. Yeah. That's what I'd say. I mean, part of the problem is that the penalty box shouldn't really be a box, right? Right. If you were drawing the lines now, you'd obviously have a curved line as the D is, as the center circle is. And originally the penalty box was just a straight line all the way across the pitch and then it was made into a box. So yeah, there are obviously corners of the box where, you know, the XG is low, the XT is low, but the probability of winning a penalty is, is probably quite high. And in a way, I think that it is a bit overpowered, as Liam says, but that's kind of part of the game and it makes it to a certain extent, it makes it a little bit like uh, sports like rugby or basketball where you literally have two different points you can go for because winning a penalty is 0.85 of a goal. And so I think in a way, we, you know, you just have to factor that into the equation and you can take it a step further. And I looked up the stats of players uh, going back to, to 2016 onwards, the players who've won the most penalties and Raheem Sterling's way out in front. He's, he's won 20 penalties in that really? time. No one else has won more than 15. So convert that into, yeah, 0 0.8, 0 0.85. And that's 16, 17 goals. It is a skill. It is, you know, really valuable to a team. They, they should be measured as assists, I think, because they are probably the, the highest quality chance you can create. Uh, there's an interesting one this season where Jao Pedro for Brighton has won five penalties in all competitions, which is comfortably the most of any Premier League player. And he's then scored all of them himself. He's got a perfect record from the spot. So as Michael was saying, is it, it's suiting those those technical players where he's able to chop away from defenders or sort of go on a dribble. Um, and it sort of links back to, to John Muller's piece, I think, where I believe there's a vision there that shows sort of a heat map of where penalties are won. And the highest proportion of them is just literally just inside the box. It's in the sides, in the half spaces. It's in those positions where it's classic, almost like five a side speak of the, you know, don't foul, stand up, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, because there's, there's such little upside to you risking the tackle because the chance of you winning it are going to give such a disproportionate chance that, yeah, you don't even want to engage in that situation. So I, I'd be all for a revision of the box in terms of the, the shape of it into the, the arc. Flipping on its head as well, you think for the defenders, if they are, if the, if the attacking player is just entering into the box, you think I'd obviously encourage them to have their XG hat on and say they're, go, they're running into an area that's a 0.04 chance of scoring here. Just stay, just stay here because the likelihood is, knowing expected threat and expected goals, there's very little chance of them actually doing anything from here. But then obviously if they bring them down, they're the ones who are in control of whether or not they, they bring them down. Handballs are quite a tough one at the moment, as we've just spoken about. But you know, maybe on the duty of the defender, they know what the probability is themselves, or they should know it more. Um, and they can they can use that information to their advantage. Yeah, it's, a, it's such an interesting discussion because I... Part of me feels that uh, reducing the probability of penalties being scored would 
be a good thing because of this overpowered nature of them. But then we would see more penalties, no doubt. As Liam mentions, defenders would start taking it as a, a better option uh, at times as well. Um, in terms of this season and the officially insane conversion rate, uh, are there any particular theories on why it might have had such a spike this season? I think the first thing to say is that the high conversion rate this season is both an outlier and also part of the general pattern. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we don't expect it to continue to be 91% for the rest of the season. But when you look at the data over the Premier League years, in the 90s, it was usually about the 70% mark. Then it crept up to the high 70s. And now for most of the last few seasons, it's been above 80%. So this is a bit of an anomaly. But yeah, it fits into the overall trend as well. We touched upon it before in terms of the, the age of VAR, that referees and the VAR uh, hub, so to speak, are so hot on making sure that the, the goalkeepers do have a, a foot behind the line and they're not afraid to allow the penalty to be retaken if the goalkeeper does sort of go over the line. With my Liverpool hat on as well, Jersey Dudek's stride towards uh, Andrea Pirlo in the, the Champions League final would have been completely struck off with, without a doubt for that because there's been so many across history that where we've seen it happen um, when they're supposed to sort of keep their, their feet behind the line. But now in the age of VAR where it's down to the millimetres, we're seeing the advantage go even more towards the penalty taker because the, the goalkeeper has... It, it's so hard to be able to, to drive off. I'd love to be able to speak to a goalkeeper about this, but it's so hard to be able to spring forward and across mm. with such little margin that you are then probably taking a couple of percent, let's say three or four percent, which is then going to increase the XG to maybe around the 80s rather than sort of the mid 70s. So it's no coincidence, I think, that in, in the age of VAR, the XG and the quality of the, the conversion has gone up. This is a, a slightly niche point on it. But it's something I looked at and actually did my undergraduate dissertation on this. And it's it's the difference in terms of keepers facing left footers versus right mm -hmm. footers. Mm -hmm. There's sort of research in other sports that shows that the, and it's true sort of in penalties as well. Some studies find mixed things, but it's obviously the one thing in football that we can actually generally analyze on an academic level because it's so repeatable and controllable. The lower proportion of left footers means that naturally keepers face more right footers. So they learn predominantly the angles and the tendencies of where they like to place it. And they primarily learn to read right footers. So they have a harder time predicting left-footed penalties when you look at the ways they dive, if they manage to touch the ball. Conversion rates tend to be similar, but you tend to get lefties missing more than they um, have penalties sort of saved. And there's been a really high volume of left-footed penalty um, goals this season. 20 of the 41 have been from left-footed players. Haaland and Salah have three each. Cole Palmer's got four. Odegaard has two. Saka's got two. And Buemo's got three. Uh, Luca Pacata and Fabio Vieira both have one as well. Um, so that's almost up to 50%. And it's been trending upwards from 23% last season, 22.6% the season before, back to 14%, 8%, um, and down as low as 5% in 2018-19, where there were four left-footed penalty goals out of 84. And three of those were Salah, one was Matt Ritchie. I'm wary not to add further numbers to that because I'm just trying to digest this. But I looked at it since 2018-19 and just to reiterate what, what Liam's saying of just how many right-footers there are taking penalties in the in the Premier League, 83% of the penalty takers in that period. That is quite striking, 83% are taken with from right-footed players. What I think is also quite interesting and goes back to what Mark said about how goalkeepers now have to keep their, their foot on the line and there's VAR. In 2003, they changed the rules so that before goalkeeper had to be stationary. Then they change it so the goalkeeper could move along the line if they want to. And if you look at penalties from 2003-2004, most notably the one Van Nistelrooy missed against Arsenal, 
Jens Lehmann's just like, you know, <laughs> like dancing back and forth across the line. And I thought that would make it harder for the penalty taker to score, but it didn't really have much impact at all. And of course, no one does it anymore. Yeah. But if you go back to like those one or two seasons, it just looks mad what goalkeepers are doing. Because sometimes they're like just to the left when the penalty is taken. Mm. It's bizarre. Yeah. It's almost like a kind of crazy golf version of the penalty <laughs> kick. Goodness me, what a moment for penalty taker and goalkeeper. This for three points, this to beat fierce rivals, this to go top of the Premiership tonight. The responsibility rests with Rude van Nistelrooy. Oh, he's missed it! He has hit the bar! Arsenal can't believe it! You're listening to the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. You've worked closely with goalkeepers in the past, Liam. Is ever any discussion about how much you should be moving on your line to try and give yourself a, a bit more energy in your spring or as a distraction technique, as Michael suggest you don't really seem to see it anymore no I think I mean Martens is obviously one that comes to mind for being quite animated particularly compared to Larissa in that World Cup final and going back to the the Copa America as well um they had a shooter I think in one of the one of the knockout rounds there it depends on who the goalkeeper is as their personality I think that there's some that really like that side of it mm. um some that do want to engage and and, and be like that and be be verbal um and confrontational and I think you can very quickly see who it comes to naturally and authentically because these are pressure situations and look when I was coaching I was working with with uh, youth goalkeepers so these aren't even sort of fully formed adults so I think it's even harder for them to put on um you know a mask of of being performative like that and you see it very clearly with someone like Amy Martinez that he just looks like he loves it and playing that almost that villain role you know they will do a lot of work now on um, even when the the coin toss gets made wanting to be the team that's closest to the dugout so that you can shout instructions and change mm. things having control on whether you take first or you take second you know who gives the ball to the player just trying to control and um make almost scientific that that build up and that approach so i guess yeah the the, the best goalkeepers now can can be disruptive as well but equally they'll be good penalty saving goalkeepers that can just sort of stand on their line and, and not say anything and just you know they can be successful because that's their way of, of defending the goal. Michael, it's amazing how these new techniques of, of managing penalty shootout situations, particularly for the taker, have changed and like massively over the last few years to the point where now there's a load of stuff that is almost a complete given if you're looking out for it that, again, maybe f- even five years ago wasn't wasn't seen much one of them and the most notable for me is that is the deep breaths mm. the two <laughs> deep breaths before you stand and take your penalty yeah i remember first reading about that in uh, a book ben littleton wrote all about penalties which was 
Very interesting. The whole book's very good. And that, I mean, whenever I've watched a shootout since then, probably a bit of confirmation bias, but I'm sure the player who goes quickest after the whistle blows is always the one who uh, who misses. It seems to happen every shootout. That's, that's uh, an academic thing that's been looked at. It's slightly dated research now, I think, but the internal so player-controlled rates of waiting at penalties and how quickly they run up or how long they take, hence the deep breaths, uh, is linked to missing it more or not scoring more when you do run up quicker. And I believe that's one of the things that was attributed to England in previous major tournaments, that when they would miss penalties in shootouts or in games, they were the quickest to, as soon as the whistle goes um, to sort of run up. So you do sort of get that, that period where you go, I guess almost knowing that as a player now, you go, if I can wait five to 10 seconds, I'm more likely to score that. To me, I don't know because I'm not a player, but that has to be a confidence boost to know that that means you're in more control. Yeah, it's probably worth speaking about Guillaume Jordet here, who's a psychologist who's done loads of what we might have mentioned him before. He's done loads of work about scanning. Um, we've we've covered quite a lot of his work on site, and he basically looked at every penalty in the World Cup um, across the past fifty years. He's been working on it sort of relentlessly on this, um, and it, he's covered a lot of different topics. But this sort of thing is is one of them. He spoke a lot about the the perception of control. And especially in such a high pressure situation, this is probably more to do with penalty shootouts. But that sort of that deep breath of being completely in control and knowing that I will take this penalty when I want to take this penalty, not when I'm not the minute the whistle blows. Mm. Perception of control. And it's, you spoke about the theory of compensatory control to know that, you know, when you're feeling in a heightened state of stress and anxiety as humans, we tend to try and control the controllables. And it's all those things that go with it. And it's, it's something which we, we have seen more, more commonly because there's been kind of more appreciation, more understanding of psychology in general. And there's more sort of psychologists who work with clubs and international um, football teams. So it's this increase of this perception of control, which I think links really nicely. And the, the work that he's done more broadly, I'd encourage people to, to give it a read because there's so much that we could, we could go through there. And, and there's also the area where uh, I think you and I, Ali, have influenced the game heavily because... As probably mentioned before on this podcast, uh, Ali did a lot of the French research for my book about European football zonal marking. And one of the things that he found in his many French language books he went through is that when France got a penalty against Portugal in Euro 2000, Portugal went mad because they didn't think it was a penalty. And France did this thing where Robert Perez took the ball as if he was going to take the penalty. The Portuguese players all tried to put him off and then he gave it to Zidane. Zidane took the penalty. Now we've seen that a hell of a lot in the last three or four years. But I, when I read this, I don't think I'd ever heard of it before. Yeah. And you actually can't see it on television because they're focusing on the, you know, the replays or whatever. But I'm sure it's only come into yeah. fashion since the publication of That's this book. Cool. So I, I mean this like I'm kind of joking when I say this. If anyone can find any examples between 2000 and 2019 of this kind of false penalty taker, I'm really intrigued mm. about it. Because I'd never heard of it before, and now it's like seems to happen the majority of the time. Well, it was a pleasure to work with you on something uh, quite so groundbreaking. <laughs> <laughs> the goalkeepers they are studying more and more and more, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, I think taking a penalty is is getting harder and harder. Uh, the game is changing, mm -hmm. you know. The goalkeepers, they, they are getting better and better and faster. So at some point I felt that, okay, I need another option. 
one relevant piece of, of content that sort of runs alongside this podcast is the excellent interview with Arsenal's Jorginho on the Athletic Football podcast feed from earlier this week. And Jorginho, of course, has taken a lot of penalties. He's taken them in a, a very notable way with that hop technique. Uh, he has both scored a lot of penalties and missed a couple of, of quite big ones too. So it's really interesting to hear him talking about penalties, particularly when we're talking, Liam, about conversion rates going up, certain rule changes benefiting the taker. But Jorginho makes a, a fair point, which is hard to argue with, that goalkeepers are now better. They are more athletic. You know, physical performance is improving. Not only that, they are better prepared than ever before. And we often see notes on the water bottle and post-match interviews where they say, I've watched every penalty that all of these guys had ever taken. Um, and in that sense, Jorginho, I think, was suggesting that he feels it's getting harder for the taker. Well, it's it's like any sort of tactical benefit that you get in football that comes around in some form of cycle that keepers are now, as you said, becoming more prepared. Um, and the thing with Jorginho is he is often taking penalties in what academics will call a, a goalkeeper-dependent method. So he's reliant on the goalkeeper diving one way and committing early or not being prepared to just stand up tall. I think Pickford was a great example in, in that Euro shootout where he did stand tall for a long time and, and dives really late because um, he wants the goalkeeper to commit so he can score the other way. That That's his way. Whereas you'll get other players, I think it's probably been more Mo Salah's way of taking where he takes the penalty almost if the goalkeeper isn't there. That you know Harry Kane is another example. A lot of the time, at times he'll switch it up, but that trademark came where he runs up and he goes across the keeper's right to his left into the side netting. That's a goalkeeper independent penalty, you'd call it, because you're taking it just to score repeatedly the same way every single time. Right. And I think if keepers know that you want to, that becomes then a mind game, right? Because Jorginho probably could do the Harry Kane technique. He's, you know, I think every professional footballer can score every kind of penalty now. It's not a technique thing. It's not like free kicks or another part of the game. Um, so yeah, if, if you know, keepers and teams now know he's going to do that then it's just a case of, of finding other ways of then take the hop out you run up a bit differently because again the, the run-up isn't just about having a way to try and to try and score but it's also about the body language what you do or don't communicate mm -hmm. and there's research that i've looked at that um going across the goalkeeper tends to be a bit more readable because you close yourself off a bit earlier your run tends to be i think a bit narrower um so that can be a bit more obvious but then the upside is generally you can get a bit more power um, and of course, if you keep your hips open, you have the chance to go keep aside or you can still reverse it. And as soon as you close off, uh, then you're so, sort of forced to go one way. I was looking into that goalkeeper dependent strategy um, and looking at the research on it. There was um, some work done at the University of Portsmouth about this. And the, the argument from the researcher was that it is, it is, I was going to say arguably, it is harder to do the goalkeeper dependent method of looking to see what the goalkeeper is doing, reacting to what they're doing and then executing your shot because... It's, it's a dual task. You've got to watch what they're doing, watch what you're doing, making sure that you get a good contact on the ball rather than the goalkeeper independent strategy, which is just to leather it or just make sure that you've got your, your technique really, really good. Um, I'm going to name drop here and say that when I was speaking to Alan Shearer, um, <laughs> because it, I actually did a piece um, last season about this um, and, and sort of the, the penalty technique. And he said that in training in the lead up um, to each match day, he told the, the reserve goalkeeper where he was going to go and still try to do it. So that is the, right. the goalkeeper independent sort of strategy to make sure that the classic, there's no goalkeeper can save that sort of method because there is obviously a, a spot which is almost unsavable. And that was his method of doing it rather than, you know, depending on what the goalkeeper was going to do. But as we have sort of discussed, both have their merit.
The most uh, impressive player in terms of sending the goalkeeper the wrong way was Mark Noble. Mm. Uh, there was a fantastic uh, Twitter account and blog called Penalty Kick Stat, which mm. sadly no longer updates, but had a wonderful database where you could look up any player and look at all their statistics. And I'm not quite sure how many of Noble's penalties were logged uh, on this site, but overall he scored uh, 28 penalties in the Premier League. So he was very successful. And the stats on that website have it that only 13% of the time the goalkeeper went the right way, which is incredible. And he's not, he, I mean, he wasn't like a hot penalty. He wasn't someone who really obviously waited. But 13%, you'd have to think that he's he just perfected the art of waiting for the goalkeeper because I actually went back and looked at all his penalties. Not for this pod. This was a, <laughs> a few years ago. Just for fun. <laughs> and I mean, the goalkeeper never gets near any of them. It's not just that he scored a very high percentage. It's that it's always like five yards away from the goalkeeper. It was absolutely incredible. Maybe that's just pure statistical variance and luck. Could maybe be. Just if, you, if you flip a coin a million times, maybe at some point there'll be a run of whatever it would need to be, 17 out of 20 heads. And of course, he's one of the few players in Premier League history who's been brought on specifically to take a penalty, which was against David De Gea, who hadn't saved his previous 28 penalties or something and of course De Gea saved <laughs> remember that happening in a was it a Spurs Leicester game as well I think Vardy came on at Wembley and uh, got brought on then maybe 1-0 down and, and had a penalty I think Lloris actually saved it or he missed it really good um, idea so, so players and, and this is something I, I spoke to um, some professionals actually for the dissertation when I wrote it to, to get some really to help me shape the metrics that I was using for it and there was a, a really valuable quote I, I took away from it and one of the players I won't name drop because it's, it's anonymity in this kind of research. Um, but he said that the first couple I took, I was really, really nervous. I was so desperate to score that I changed my mind last minute. Ever since then, I've just picked away and just hit it. So I think we need to appreciate that there's so much science and research that goes into this now. I mean, hence a mug like me writing 10,000 words on, on this sort of topic. Um, but you are still working with human beings that want to operate in a certain way. And for some people, they just can't or don't want to function. If you say to them, you need to try and turn this into a mind game and a battle that they want to just know, I've got a routine, I'm gonna run up and hit it this way. Um, so for certain players, I.e. Jorginho, who clearly is at the very top of the, the game, not just technically, but also psychologically, and obviously you can't see players psychologically, I guess it just doesn't work for everyone. Well, my role as a data analyst is to strip out all the human element and just focus <laughs> on uh, the facts. But I think this is a good opportunity to to speak about where the best place is to place a penalty statistically. Um, and I, I looked into some research on this. There was a 2020 study uh, and it looked at penalty kicks from the 2009-10 to the 2018-19 Premier League season. They looked at all penalty kicks, 952 of them, and the study revealed that the penalty should be directed towards the top vertical zone of the goal to optimize the opportunity for success. Um, and it, it links to, to the goalkeeper side of it as well, because the goalkeeper has such a bias to move either left or right, that then statistically speaking, you go where they've moved from, i.e. the center of the goal. So um, yeah, across quite a wide range um, of, of seasons, 952, big old sample. It said that, you know, the advice would be to to practice this more. And we don't really, I don't feel like we really see it all that often, considering it makes complete sense, backed up by research. I think maybe Harry Kane does it a few times. Callum Wilson, I think, does it quite often to go down the centre of the goal. But it's it's crept in a little bit more commonly. But in the grand scheme of things, I've not seen it as much as as it maybe should be executed. Yeah, there's a similar, there's a great video uh, that's on YouTube from the University of Bath uh, by someone called Dr. Ken Bray, who 
like the research Mark's referencing, it's called How to Take the Perfect Penalty. And he basically terms it as this um, sort of goal scoring envelope where the top corners of the goal are the best places to put it. Um, and the very, very bottom corners um, are sort of the, the other best place. Because you, if you hit it hard enough um, and accurately enough, unless the keeper goes really, really early, just the sheer reaction time and the ball speed, they just can't get across um, the goal quickly enough. But it's also interesting that we talk about keepers going left and right a lot. No one really speaks about whether they dive high or dive low. Yeah. Um, and it's not really something that I think ever gets considered in, you know, they're always going to pick the side first. And then it's going to be a case of, well, do you have one arm that goes low if you do guess correctly? Do you have one arm that goes high? You have the trailing legs to sort of try and stop anything down the middle. Um, and that, that rate of standing up, I think I looked at a study that said it's about six or seven percent. Um, it's really, really low because there's a big action bias in it. And it probably comes to the point we made about defenders at the start of making tackles when the attacking situation isn't actually going to be as valuable as what the penalty would be because they probably feel a need to and want to do something. Because otherwise, if you let someone dribble past you and they score, well, then you go, goal's conceded anyway, and it's my fault. If I make a tackle and it goes slightly wrong, well, I've tried to do my job and defend. And keepers, I guess, will say the same of if I stand up and they roll it to one side, it's, I haven't done anything. Right. I don't want to be looked at as, as, you know, either like, I don't know, shirking responsibility or, or not doing anything. Well, there's certainly been that discussion in recent years. Why don't more goalkeepers stand still, stand up tall in the centre of their goal? Because it, it feels like more players are going down the middle and often lifting it slightly as well. So that if a goalkeeper does dive, their, their training legs can't, can't uh, stop the ball on their way. Um, but action bias, I think, is is what Liam is, is the term that he's using, is not wanting to look stupid by standing up and the ball just being popped in the corner and, and it looks like you haven't, outwardly, it looks like you haven't tried to do something. But of course you have, you have just made a decision uh, just as you would if you were diving in the corners. What I'm interested in that Liam just brought up is with goalkeepers choosing to dive high or low when they do pick a side is, I don't know if technically diving higher is harder than diving lower. I also think it looks worse if the if you dive the right way and the ball goes under you than it does if you dive the right way mm. and the ball goes over you. That Everyone accepts if a penalty is in the top corner, even if you've gone the right way, well, not much you can do about that. But if you go high and it goes under the body, it again, it, it looks worse. It's jarring to look at, right? I guess it's also because you can accept that if a player goes to the very top corner, they're bringing in the element of being prepared to miss it. They're going, I'm going to make this so you're not getting anywhere near it. Either it's going in um, or it's it's going over the bar. And, you, you know, there's been some in penalty shootouts. I think Maguire's in Euro 2020 where some players, you think there's there's a real bravery element to that from the player's perspective where you go, look, this this is going to go, yeah, completely top corner or um, I'm going to be completely embarrassed by it. So there's there has to be the gravity element to it that I think particularly from static where keepers can't move, they can't quickly sort of shuffle across their line to get that positive step to, to dive to get high. Um, and obviously getting down... I don't know if it's maybe going to change a bit now because, you know, you, I think you get a lot of really, really big keepers. I think there's certain ones that maybe suit getting down lower more quickly. So maybe someone like a, a Pickford, there's just, I'm not calling him small here, but I'm saying there's less of his body than other keepers to move so he can drop to the floor mm. more quickly. I've called him small. I'm like, not calling politely. him small, but there's less of his body. <laughs> Brilliant. Weird way of putting but it. But he's a good but, penalty keeper. Yeah. But but the Maguire example is, is interesting again, flipping on its head to the penalty taker. And it's, again, there's more research I've read about the the trade-off between power and placement, where in a, in a similar way to how almost, what's the aesthetics look like? Would you rather go at sort of 100% in terms of the power of your shot 
and have the risk of maybe getting it off target. So the aesthetics are that you've you've not even tested the goalkeeper or maybe go at 50% power of your shot where it's more likely to, to be on target, but there's probably more likelihood, like a Jorginho, more likelihood that if the keeper does go the right way, they save it. It's Again, it's choosing kind of how you potentially want to go wrong in this situation if, if or when it does go wrong. I think rather than looking at it as having a singular penalty and from players that I've spoken to, they say like in some national team camps that they will work on, everyone needs to have one set penalty. Because if we get into a shootout, we want everyone to be just able to take that that one effort. Um, but I think for regular penalty takers, I'm going to liken them to kind of a, cr a cricket bowler here or particularly a, a seam bowler of having a variety of things. So you've got your stock ball that you can deliver 80% of the time. So if you're Harry Kane, that's the left left side netting going across the keeper um, off the same run-up. And then you get your variation. So you've, you've got your slower ball, your, your dink down the middle, your slot when the keeper dives. You know, you've got the, the faster ball or the, the full toss, you can go into the top right corner and, and mix it up a bit. But you, you know you've got that one way where, okay, I can do this or most of the time. And obviously the most recent example significantly for England is where I don't know if he got the run-up wrong or tried to mix it up when he missed against France uh, at the World Cup, having originally scored off of his um, primary way. And it feels like it can become quite a quick narrative of when a player misses after taking one in the game already that they should have taken the same way again. I saw people saying that Kane shouldn't have taken a second penalty, that it's either bad from from Southgate or bad from him. And it's like, no, you always put your best penalty taker on penalties. <laughs> yeah. There's there's no way of foreseeing that. Um, so I, I wonder then if it just becomes even more of a psychological mm. skill, uh, having already got one. So, so many great quirks to uh, penalties, Michael. I'm sure, and this doesn't seem to exist now, but I'm sure when we were a bit younger, there was a stage where certain players wouldn't take the penalty if they'd won the penalty? Yeah, it was a big thing at Arsenal, certainly in, in the kind of Thierry Henry era where they had various players who took it. Uh, Pires, Lauren sometimes stepped up. Yeah, there was a theory that you were kind of a bit too hot-headed if you just won the Adrenaline. foul. Adrenaline. Yeah, I haven't heard of that for a long time, to be honest. I think I'd be the complete opposite. Mm. I'd be like, even more reason for me to take this. I've just won it for us, so mm. I, should, I should be the one to take it. I don't think we'll ever have the historical records to be able to say definitively who the best penalty taker of all time is. But I'd like to bring up Graham Alexander who played an incredibly long career uh, playing mostly in the EFL, but did make it to the Premier League with Burnley. I think when he made his debut in the Premier League, he was one of the oldest ever debutants. And he scored, and again, different sites will give you ever so slightly different numbers. But going on a, an article written by the Lancashire Telegraph back in 2010, at that stage he had scored 73 of 78 which is a pretty remarkable 93.5% conversion rate. And he his technique, we haven't seen since. And I don't really understand why. Maybe it's difficulty level. But I don't know if you guys can picture what I'm talking about here. Michael, possibly the other guys, maybe not. But essentially, Alexander would run up straight behind the ball, quite a long run up as well. He would run up at a decent lick there was no pausing there was no sort of sleight of hand but he had three different ways of striking the ball and that dictated which side he went or down the middle of course so he he could and often did go sort of top of his foot laces straight down the middle normally lifted it quite well so that was a very a popular one for him keepers always diving in that era um, he could go the outside of his right foot 
and sort of spank it to the keeper's left to his right. And again, that worked very well because it's so unusual that someone would strike a, set, a dead ball like that. But then he could also do a really cute little, almost sort of close his foot at the last minute and just pop it, I think normally low, to his left, to the keeper's right. And I just, I, just, I mean, it's great fun watching Graham Alexander penalties. I wanted to make sure that he was brought up because you can't tell me in modern players who have better technique, probably. Yeah, I think of the outside of the foot one is the most common one. I could be right. Obviously, don't have numbers on that. But that, yeah, the only time I've ever seen anyone take a penalty with the outside of their foot and keepers couldn't read it, it seems. Oh, do you remember the viral Spanish under-21 goal from about 2011? Yes. My favourite penalty. He, he runs up as if he's taking it right-footed. And then it's his hard standing to foot stabs the ball uh, yeah. at, with his toe to the keeper's left, to the right-hand side. Which I think the only way you could possibly yeah. kick it, given the angle at, at, which he, at which he's running up. And... I mean, it's it's a fair penalty, and it's it's my favourite oh, penalty of all time. The goalkeeper's rooted to the spot. I'm gonna do a Mark Carey pop quiz. Um, I feel like Michael will definitely know this. Uh, two players in Premier League history have scored a penalty with their non-dominant foot or weak foot. If you want to call it that? Can anyone name either yeah. of them? Or does oh, well, Mark know? I'll take myself out of this one. I gotta say, I know this is a, as like as a fact. I don't think I would ever have guessed them if you give me hundred guesses. No, I mean, no, no. I would, the the sort of obvious and maybe the obvious wrong answer is Cathola. No, but it would make an awful lot of sense. Uh, he is he's one of the few. I try and keep a log of those who take corners with both feet because I think that's about as cool as it gets. Probably more impressive than a penalty, right, you figure? Because like you've got to kick it over a bigger distance with a, with a range. Can you give us the answers? Because then can't. I want to know what, what they were doing. Uh, Bobby Zamora and Oberfemi Martins, um, wow. which Zamora was incredibly two-footed and a great ball striker. Um, I don't know the games or the context, but uh, what a great skill to have. Maybe that's the next frontier in, in so overcoming... He scored a penalty... With both feet. Yeah. What what was he do you reckon he just woke you know, he had a, a month where he was just feeling it a bit bit more on his right foot. I'm waiting for players to do this now though when you go, you know, what is an opposition team gonna do if and he probably won't ever do it because it's too much risk, but if Harry Kane rocks up and takes a penalty with his left foot, if you're a keeper and you've prepared for forty penalties, um, or have many with his right foot and he suddenly goes, I'm gonna switch it up today, there's mm. there's definitely players I think could do that and it would, it would throw everyone off completely and would be just would be great fun to watch. I think some people would find it disrespectful mm. in a way that people like love Ronnie to O'Sullivan find with, his, yeah. with his cue. Yeah. Showboating. The game is the game. I agree. I agree. More, more. I'm all for it. Um, guys, I mean, we've talked about so much and I, I dare say we could sit in here for another couple of hours and, and keep expanding on some of the things that we're talking about. But it's time to finish uh, and we thank you guys very much for listening to the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic.